Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. is the executive director of Sisters in Crime, and I'm thrilled to welcome Hank Philippi Ryan to the podcast today. Hank's a USA bestselling author of 13 thrillers, winning five Agathas in the coveted Mary Higgins Clark Award. As a television investigative reporter in Boston, she's also won 37 Emmy Awards. Her legal thriller, The Murder List, won the 2019 Anthony Award for Best Novel of the Year. Her 2020 novel is the psychological standalone, The First to Lie, which is now a nominee for the prestigious Anthony Ward and Mary Higgins Clark Award. And the publisher's weekly starred review calls The First to Lie stellar. Her upcoming book is Her Perfect Life, which has been called superlative by Publishers Weekly, and it's going to be released on September 14th. Thank you so much for being here today, Hank. Oh, my pleasure, Julie. Thank you. It's always so much fun to hear that introduction, you know, the starred review from Publishers Weekly and USA Today bestseller, because on all the days that I'm sitting here at this very desk thinking, I am the worst writer on the planet. Nobody will ever (laughs) read my books again. This is terrible. Why did I do this? And whose idea was this anyway? Um, It's very reassuring to hear someone like you remind me Um, of what good things can happen, um, even during the duress of being a writer. My mom used to say, I used to say, this is so hard when I, you know, pick a thing that I was doing as a kid. And my mom would say, why do you think they call it work? And that's sort of how I sometimes feel about writing too. So I'm happy for a little glory after all the hard work. Well, you deserve a lot of glory. And I'm, I'm lucky enough to have known you for your writing career. We first met many years ago now at a Sisters in Crime New England meeting. Um, but I, what intrigues me about you and your writing career, amongst many things, is that in the Boston and New England area, you're a well-known television reporter. And um, as we said, won 37 Emmys. But if folks aren't from here, they don't realize that they we see you on our televisions and have for many years. And taking a risk at a second career is a leap of faith that I admire, Um, especially when you're well known in your field. And and you know you're risking you. You want to be a good writer and you're doing everything the right way, but it's still a, a, an emotional risk, or maybe it wasn't for you. So just before, as, before we start talking about the nitty-gritty of your writing um, path, can, can you talk about how you found that courage? Oh, my gosh. You know, it's interesting, and sometimes I, I think I embrace how naive I was at the time. If I had known anything, and Julie, I mean, if I had known anything, about what was about to happen or what I was about to go through or encounter. Um, I, I might not have had the courage to do it, but I can tell you exactly when it started. I remember the day that it started, you know, back, you know, starting back, back when, when I was growing up and reading Agatha Christie and Sherlock Holmes and Josephine Tay and all those wonderful novels. And I loved them. And I thought, wouldn't that be cool 
to write a book, but my career didn't go that way. So after I was 55, I can tell you, I was 55 years old and I was sitting at my desk at Channel 7 and I, I just, and I know you'll understand this, I just had a good idea. I, I, I knew it was a good idea. You know, in, in every realm of our lives, when we think, oh yeah, that'll work. And there's a thing that happens and, it's, and, I, and writers understand this. And I went home and I said to my husband, I've got a great idea for a book. I just know it's a good idea. I'm going to write a mystery. And my husband says, great, honey. <laughs> you know, he's trying to be supportive and he's so adorable, but this was just out of the clear blue. He says, do you know how to write a book? And I said, oh, how hard can it be? You know, I remember this. You know, I, I remember saying to him, how hard can it be? In just this tossed off kind of casual way. Um, I said, I've read a million books. I know how to do this. And here's the key of that. That was so silly. I mean, that was incredibly silly. And I soon found how hard it could be. But I firmly think, and quickly that turned into the prime, prime time, which won the Agatha mm -hmm. for Best First Mystery. And that was the beginning of my career. That one idea at age 55. So I think that's a nugget for people to take away that, you know, I'm a firm believer, and I please don't think this is woo-woo, that things happen when the time comes that they're supposed to happen. And you can't make them happen. You can't finagle them to happen. You can't manipulate them to happen. You have to be present and open to the thing that's about to happen to you that you will then be ready for. Is this making any sense to you? And I, and I think when I got that idea, I thought no further than... I have this book idea and I want to write this book. I want to write this story. Just like for the, for the golly, 30 years before that, that I'd been a television reporter, and I still am a reporter. For the yeah. 30 years before that, that I'd been a television reporter, I love storytelling. I, I, that's what I love to do. That's what I do every day is tell a story. Mm -hmm. And I knew as a reporter, as a journalist, you know that feeling when you think, oh, that's a good story. What a good story. And you love that. A hell of a story is what we say. Um, and I knew what I had thought of was a hell of a story. And I had the confidence, my experience as a reporter gave me the confidence to think I knew how to tell that story. Well, that was really wrong. That was just so wrong because I had no idea how to tell the story, not in a million years. But it was that little spark of thinking, well, I've written millions of words. I've written for 30 years. I bet I could do this. So it was mm -hmm. a, so in a, in a rambling answer to your perfectly wonderful question, it's that I had a little knowledge, to, so enough to go on, but not enough to terrify me. Well, that little knowledge um, of telling a story, and, and you're exactly right, they are similar, but it's different, you know, telling a six-minute news piece as opposed to a full-length novel. Um, and, you know, how did you figure out the writing the novel part? <laughs> I wish you had been there with me to tell me that um, at the time that I started, that there was difference between a six-minute story for television and a 100,000-word novel and with no pictures. <laughs> um, that didn't cross my mind. But um, I did it step by step. I mean, the, the years, years, decades of experience in reading the kind of book that I love to read, Mysteries and Thrillers, um, gave me a sense of the rhythm of those books. 
and how they had to be and what a story was. Um, the thing that turned out to be, and, and I can tell you that my stories for, for my novels, my manuscripts are always 20,000 words too long. They're too long. Wow. Not somebody taking a television story and saying, oh my golly, how am I going to pad this out? My brain just said, oh, finally, I can say whatever I want to say. And there's no producer saying, can you cut 15 seconds from that? Can you cut a minute from that? I, I was allowed just to go for it. And sadly, I did go for it. I, I can tell you. I'll tell you this really, really quickly. Um, my first novel, my first draft of Primetime, I was so happy about it. And I took it to the Kinkos. That's how long it was ago. And I said, and I gave him the floppy disk that my novel was on. That's how long ago it was. And I said, can you, can you print this for me? It's my novel. And he's like, yeah, lady. Okay, sure. So he, I cut, I came back and the guy said, I said, I'm here to pick up my printing. And the guy says, um, oh, you're the one with the novel. And I thought he read it. He read it as he was printing it. And now he knows I'm the real deal. And he absolutely loved it. And I said, yes, I'm the one with the novel. And he says, okay, ma'am. And he picks up a ream box of paper, 500 sheets of paper, and puts the ream box of paper on the, on the counter and says, here's your book. And I said, okay, great. And he says, no, that's not all. And he picked up another ream box of paper, another 500-page <laughs> box of paper, and put it on the table and said, here's the rest of it. And my first book was 723 pages long. I hadn't wow. numbered the pages, so I didn't know another newbie problem. So, but Julie, I had to cut 400 pages. I had to cut 400 pages. And that was what taught me how to write a book. It taught me what I was, was tangential, what was digressions, what was me showing off as a writer, what was me trying to be funny, what was things that didn't need, what were things that didn't need to be in the book. That was, that was what taught me how to what should be in a book. So, and I, and it's interesting. I've now written 13 novels and I can tell you it does not get any easier. My books are still 20,000 words too long. And I rely on that. You know, I rely on that editing process. We can talk about that. Um, but I just try to be better with each and every book and try to challenge myself with each and every book. And I had this fantasy when I started that, well, book number two, that'll be much easier. Uh, that was wrong as well. And you've had two series and some standalones. Um, are they, and right now you're writing standalones. Are, do you, and, you know, saying do, which do you prefer is a hard question, but in a standalone, you're completely creating the world from the ground up for this one story. With a series, you can add on and add characters and develop things. Uh, you know, how did you make that switch into writing standalones? Yes, the series standalone uh, question is always endlessly fascinating to me because there's so many pros and cons of each of them. And again, you know, somebody says, why did you decide to write a series? Then why did you decide to write a standalone? I'm like, God, I didn't make that decision. You know, honestly, the story made the decision. In my first books, the Charlotte McNally series, that was, that was so main character driven, first person, present tense, mm -hmm. all about Charlotte McNally, an investigative reporter, so character driven that it, it set itself up for her having adventures. And that's what that meant. One, you know, it's like a reporter. I have a story that I have to do this week and I have a story that I have to do next month and I have a story that, so 
it's it served that it was of itself that that it meant to be a series the jane wyland series beginning with the other woman um that's another reporter a different reporter a younger reporter on the trail of a mystery and her secret boyfriend a cop on the trail of a murder mystery murder investigation and again that allows itself to be what are jake and jane going to do next what's their next mm-hmm. case what's their next story the serial idea of storytelling the series worked perfectly for that and i had i created a world that had a core and a core two core characters and some core supporting characters and then i got to make the rest of the world for each individual story and that worked very well but when i got the idea for trust me um, I knew my first standalone. I knew that that was not a series. That was not a series. That had to be, the, it was the most important thing that had ever happened in their lives to these characters. And they had a life before the book and they had a life after the book, but this was the thing. This was the thing mm-hmm. that we really cared about, what happened in the book. And when I started writing, and I knew it had to be a standalone, and I said to my editor, this is going to be a standalone. And she says, absolutely, no question about it. You know the difference. And when I started writing, when I started writing, trust me, the standalone, I realized the power of the standalone that, um, see, in it, let me just say really quickly, in a series, you know that Jane Ryland is not going to die because in, in, she's going to come back in book two and three and four. So the challenge for the author is to come up with a, a story that the readers will care about, deeply care about, and keep them turning the pages, all the while knowing that the main character is not going to die. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? That's a juggle, because the, the life and death stakes are not there. The, the, the idea that it's a series just takes those away. So interesting. So what do we do as series authors? But in a standalone, anyone can live. Anyone can die. Anybody can be good and anybody can be bad and anybody can change from good to bad or bad to good in the middle of the book. And anyone can be lying and anything can happen. Anything can happen. And there can be any ending that the author wants. And that is power. Mm -hmm. That is power. So I just gloriously embraced um, that freedom, that terror of writing the standalone where I knew one and done, this is it. This is all you're going to get. This is the moment in these people's lives that you cannot miss. And I'm going to give it to you now. And the other thing about that is talking about readers' expectations of a series. In a series, you expect the next story and the next story and the next story. You say, oh, I love Jane Ryland. I can't, just, I can't wait to see what she's, going, what she's going to do next. Readers are smart. And readers know what a mystery is going to be. And readers know what a thriller is going to be. And they kind of know what to expect. And they're figuring it out along the way. Start with in my world with the author because I have no idea. They're figuring out along the way and they're trying to be smarter than I am. Mm-hmm. And so my job as an author of a standalone is to try to keep one step or two steps ahead of them and say, you think you know what's going to happen? Oh, no. Watch this. Um, and defying those expectations still in the, in the genre, in the, in the framework of a thriller, to be fair, um, is one of the most fun parts of writing to me. So let's go back a little bit and, and talk about when, when did the idea of writing a novel first pop into your head? I, I love that because being a journalist is telling stories and you've been doing that. But when did you, you know, were you a small child who said, this is, I want to write a book someday? Or is this something that 
at, you know, when you were 55, you said, oh, this would be a, a great next adventure. Um, I, okay, I can, I can confess to you that I have no memory of wanting to write a mystery. I, as a kid, I, maybe I thought of it, but mostly I thought it would be more fun to be the detective than write about the detective. It would be more fun to be Sherlock Holmes than, or Nancy Drew, or whoever it is, um, or Harriet Vane, than it would be to write about that. And you see what happened, I became an investigative reporter. And I realized, um, as I was being an investigative reporter, and still, you know, reading thrillers and mysteries like crazy, that the tracks were the same, the thought processes were the same. I was being, I was writing mysteries, as I was, as I was being an investigative reporter, I was telling a story that had good guys, bad guys, a problem that needed to be solved, where you want the good guys to win and the bad guys to get what's coming to them. And in the end, you want some justice. Um, and you want to change the world a little bit and tell a satisfying, entertaining story. That's an investigative television story. And that's a story. And that's, and that's a fictional detective story, a murder mystery, a thriller as well. It's the same. So um, it's just that, you know, in, in fiction, you have to make stuff up. And that's what I didn't know, frankly, whether I could do. I didn't know whether after all these years of saying, of writing exactly what someone told me, exactly what was in the documents, the setting was only where it actually was, the dialogue was only what people actually told me. Could I sit here at this very computer and say, okay, I'm going to make a whole new world where people do pretty much what I think they can do. And that was another one of the joys is realizing that I could flip my imagination to a different, to a different process of the same kind of storytelling, to a different mode of the same kind of storytelling. And in answer to your question, when did I get the idea to be a, 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 to write the mystery? It was, I mean, I'll tell you specifically, I got a spam email and I opened it by mistake. And it was what looked like lines from a Shakespearean play. And I thought, wait a minute. The, the, the subject line of the email said, a new refinancing deal for you. But the body of the email was lines from what looked like, as I said, a Shakespearean play. And I thought, why would someone send a spam email about mortgage refinancing with lines from a Shakespearean play in the body of it? And my brain said to me, and I swear to you, this is true. My brain said to me, Maybe it's a secret message. And I thought, mm. secret messages in computer spam. Are you kidding me? That's the best idea I ever heard. That's a mystery plot right there. Could it work? How could it work? Who would do that? Why would they do that? What would be the point? What's the result? Who would discover it? And what would happen as a result of that? And who would get killed? Because, of course, it was instantly a murder mystery. And that was it. That's, that's, that's a great idea. It still sounds like a great idea to me. Um, and when you get an idea like that, when the muse or whoever she is says, mm-hmm. sweetheart, I've, I've got this for you now. You just take it and say thank you. And it's your responsibility to take that story. Someone has something has presented. I just got goosebumps saying this. Someone has presented it to you and you better use it. Or as in Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic, she talks about if you don't use it, it's going to go to somebody else, oh and God. you don't want that to happen as well. Really? Um, she says that? I, never, I didn't know that. That is fascinating. Well, you have to wonder about that 
thought. I mean, I didn't know about that Elizabeth Gilbert book, which I will run out and get instantly, but you telling me that she said that, and that is exactly what I'm saying, obviously. And so that must mean that there's a thing about, that must be that there's something about that. Well, when you talk about the muse, I mean, I get the goosebumps too, because I do think there's a magic where, you know, we talk about mechanics on this podcast and we talk about writing careers and everything else, but there's magic to the idea and to the the work itself, even though it is, um, it is challenging. I mean, and I think it's helpful to hear that, you know, 17 books in, it's still challenging for you to write a novel. I mean, it's a good challenge, but it's challenging. Oh my golly. Of course it's challenging. It's challenging. It's the most challenging, daunting thing um, that I have ever done in my entire life. I mean, I have wired myself with hidden cameras. I've confronted corrupt politicians. I've gone undercover and in disguise. And yes, that was difficult and high stakes and scary and valuable and worthwhile. And I'm pleased that I did it. And this is just as scary uh, in, in, in just its own way. And being a television reporter is not one bit glamorous. There is no glamour. There is 24-7 work. And that is exactly the same as being a writer. It is 24-7 work. I read you... I know you've read this, the, this wonderful book, The Stranger Diaries by Ellie Griffiths. And if you haven't, all of you, please, please do. It's great. And in The Stranger Diaries, one of the main characters, I promise you this has a point, one of the main characters is an English teacher. And she tells her writing students, the muse only comes when you're working. And uh, that just, I, I can't believe that I'm taking my writing life advice from a fictional character, but okay. But that, I mean, so it's really Ellie Griffiths. And I, and I have told her this, that that was so profound to me because there are days when I sit at this computer and I think I have no idea. I just, I got nothing. And I have to write my thousand words a day or my book won't be done in time. And so I tell myself, you know what, sister? just write the book, just write anything. And I write and I think, wow, this stinks. This is the most terrible thing anybody has ever written. This is the worst sentence that there could possibly be. And I say, uh-huh, yep, it is. Now just write another terrible sentence. That's fine. And you can just write a thousand terrible sentences or however many it is until you get your thousand words and then you can stop. But stop complaining because it's just taking up time. You are lucky. You are lucky. You get to write a book. Someone is waiting for this book. So do it and you can fix it later. I mean, I... I, I, we were talking, I think, earlier about um, what's the worst piece of writing advice that someone has ever given me. And the, here it is, if you want to know. The worst piece of writing advice that anyone has ever given me was something like, you have to write with passion every day or don't write at all. And I'm like, no, you don't. You do not have to write with passion every day. You can write with passion if you're darn lucky and have a passionate day. But if not, you're going to write because it's your job to write. You're going to write because you have to, and you're going to write because you have the professional ability and the responsibility. To, you've, you've committed to yourself that you're going to be a writer, so do it. If you don't do it, then you're not a writer. Then you're just a pretender, and it is not fun every day to sit down and write about, wow, when I finish my thousand words a day and I go into the other room and I say to my husband, I did my words, I did my words, and it is so worth it. And so... You don't have to have passion every day. You just have to have passion for the idea that someday, if you just keep adding and adding and adding and adding, it's only arithmetic. If you keep adding and adding, then your book will be done. And then you can polish it and tweak it and make it shine and find out what you really meant to write and discover the hidden themes and all that wonderful stuff. And in the end, you will cry. 
because you have not only done a good job, but you've been diligent and responsible and worked at it. And that's, that, that's the magic to me. And you're so right. There is magic. Sue Grafton used to say that all the time that we can work and work and work and think and think and think, but, and part of it is skill and part of it is determination and part of it is persistent and part of it persistence and part of it is talent certainly. And part of it is having a good story and part of it is luck. No question about it. And part of it is magic. And there you have it. Uh, I don't know any better way of explaining that. I love, I love talking about um, the magic and the process, but you know, you said something that, that, I want to follow up on. You write your thousand words a day. Let's talk a little bit about your process. Are you a pantser or are you a plotter? I'm a super pantser. I'm a, okay. I, I have no, people say, wow, at the end of the first July, you really surprised me. And I'm like, yeah, wasn't that a surprise? You know, who would have thought that? <laughs> I, mean, I talk about surprise endings and every single book I've ever written, I've surprised myself. I mean, talk about the magic and so that, I mean, that's what gets me to the computer every day is I think, ooh, I wonder what's going to happen next. I can't wait to see. Or, you know, some days, obviously, Julie, it's more like, oh, my golly, I have no idea what's going to happen next, but, but I got to find out. So um, I, I outline after I write sort of, I'll, I'll, I'll type chapter one. And then I'll realize, or whatever, type chapter one, I'll realize what, what, where the scene has to be. Mm-hmm. And I'll have a notepad, a yellow pad by me. And I'll write chapter one, day one, Monday, 9 a.m., you know, Sally's office. So I know where I am and I know what time it is. And then when I feel the end of the scene about five pages later, I put the word, you know, I put the number five. So now it says chapter one, pages one through five, Sally's office, Monday, day one. And then I write chapter two. That's really fun. I write it on my yellow pad. And then I see what chapter two is going to be. And then I put that, I put that on my timeline sheet. So that also, that keeps me going because I know where I am. Keeps me going because I know where I am in the book. Uh, It keeps me going because I remember what time it is because, Mm -hmm. you know, Books sort of have the tendency if when you're writing, it goes, and then, 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 and you realize, wow, this day has been 40 hours long. How did that ever, how did that happen? And it won't happen if you keep track. So my only organizational, my only plotting um, element is to keep track after sort of as I write the thing of what I just wrote, not in advance. And sometimes, I think all pantsers will say this, that sometimes when you get one scene, your brain says, and then this has to happen, and then this has to happen, and then this has to happen. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I write that down real fast. Because when my brain offers me an outline, sister, I'm going to take it. Because <laughs> there is not a book that I write that I, when I finish, I think the next time I'm going to make an outline. Because that's what grownups do. And then the next time I do not make an outline because I don't know how to do it. And I, and my my editor actually said to me once, why don't you just make an outline? And I said, because how do I know what's going to happen until it happens? And it doesn't happen until I write it in the book. And sorry, that's just how my brain works. And you, you also mentioned a thousand words a day. Do you, uh, because you are, you are still a reporter and you're doing other things, is that seven days a week? Do you, you know, is this... 
this how you get your 120,000 words that you have to cut back to 100,000? Yeah, there's is 20 just... days that I wouldn't have to do it, right? If it's 100,000, all I need is 100,000 words. Wait a minute. This is reporters doing math here. I was so wrong about that. Ooh. Um, I'm a reporter. When I was a full-time reporter, I'm a part-time reporter now, thank goodness, because there was no way. At some point, you just say, I give up. I declare victory in television. I'm going to do this part-time because... You know, you know, I'm at, I, I'm 70 years old now. If I don't do it now, when am I going to do this? So um, I work part-time for Channel 7. And that's worked wonderfully, and they've been brilliant about it. And, yeah, it's pretty much seven days. No, not pretty much seven days a week. Yes, seven days a week, seven days a week. Because if I'm, if I'm not in the book, if I'm not in the world of the book, in that rhythm of the book, in the metabolism of the book every day, it starts to – it starts to – diminish around the edges it starts to get mm-hmm. fuzzy and so it, it's to my benefit as a writer I think in my brain at least to just be in that world every day and my deadline is coming my you know these crazy crushing deadlines are always coming which is the good news right I love that but I want to make those deadlines I'm a reporter and I'm not going to miss a deadline so I'd rather not panic at the end and do it step by step. So I, you know, I keep a chart. I'm making me admit all this stuff. I keep a words per day chart, just like a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. So I can reward myself when I, when I do my thousand words. And if I don't do the thousand words, then I think, okay, I only did 540 words today. That's okay. Now I'm 460 words behind, but that's all right. I can make that up. So instead of the free-floating anxiety of, oh my golly, how am I possibly going to get done? I think, okay, I know where I am in this book. I know where my deadline is. I'm fine. You know, so it's, it, if I take it a little bit of a time, a little mm-hmm. bit at a time and add, 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 as I said, it, the book will get done without me freaking out too, too much uh, along the way. And anything I can do to avoid panicking, um, I will definitely embrace. You also are, uh, you, you will have workshops and, and you teach and you help people um, develop their own craft. Is that something that helps you also become a better writer as you're doing this? Are there, are you teaching people things that you wish you'd known? Yes. And yes, I learned okay. something at every class I teach. That's, I mean, I love teaching. I love it. I, I, I had never been a teacher in my life before, um, starting this writing career. And when I see in authors faces, you can tell they that suddenly they'll they get it they see it they you know I, I I say to them after at the end of every class I say all I want is for you to be sitting at your writing desk one day and writing something and you think oh this is what Hank meant this is what she was talking about and I always say call me or email me at that point because I really want to know um, and then I mean just the other day I was teaching a class called the muddle in the middle which sadly <laughs> is where I am in my book as well. And I got a good idea for what to do. I'm like, why don't I just listen to myself? I'm teaching this class. I'm telling, you know, I'm offering these people dozens of ideas of what to do in the middle of the book and how to handle it. Why didn't I think of this? And then I thought, you did think of it, you know? So it's, I mean, teaching classes, doing seminars, doing critiques, reading other people's works. I just love it. Uh, It's easier than writing my own stuff, let me say. But the joy of helping someone or wow, finding a really good manuscript. You know, I have, I have had people who have sent their, their manuscripts and I just say, come with me. You know, I'm taking you to an agent. You know, this is, 
this is meant to be, you are good. Or I'll say, don't give up on this. You, you know, you got this, keep going. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, I, in my first two, when I sent out my first draft of my first novel, um, I sent it to two agents and one of them wrote back, unfortunately, this doesn't work for us. This is the best plot I've ever read, but you're not a very good writer. And the other, the other agent said, unfortunately, we are rejecting this. You are a terrific writer, but this is the dumbest plot I've ever read. <laughs> so yikes, you know, and I stopped, you know, for a little while I stopped. I thought, well, I guess mm-hmm. I can't do this and I don't understand publishing world. So I'm done. And then I thought it doesn't matter. That's just two people. But I, it would have been lovely if someone had said to me, you know what, you've got something here. You don't quite know what you're doing. Let me tell you or show you or open some doors for you and see if I can make your life a little bit easier. Um, Nobody really did that for me, except one person. We'll talk about that another time. Elizabeth Weed. Let me say her name. Elizabeth Weed. She was a baby agent at the time, and she's a powerhouse agent now. She's amazing, and she really helped me. And without her, I haven't seen her for 15 years. Um, without her, I, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. Absolutely no question about it. So since she took the time with me, it's my responsibility, especially as a sister in crime, to do that for other people. And I do that with passion and joy. You do do it with passion. And, and so let's talk a little bit about the publishing journey, which is different than the writing journey. I mean, there, one you control, which is your writing journey. The publishing journey some things are out of your control and, and you can't equate your, your writing success that way. But you've, um, you've also developed ways of supporting other, other writers and other people by, um, you know, you're one of the Jungle Reds, you've got your blog, you also are doing um, things on, on Facebook and on, on, on different uh, platforms with interviews and with conversations with readers and you seem to have embraced technology during the pandemic in different ways as well to to sort of bring people together so the marketing part of the publishing you're good at Hank and you're also your generosity of spirit is felt by people can you talk about that marketing part or 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 you know or your generous spirit uh, in creating all these platforms? Oh my goodness! Well, thank you. That's that. I know you can't see me, but that's bringing tears to my eyes. Thank you. Um, it's my joy to do it. Um, golly, you know, again, it comes back to television, doesn't it? I've been a television reporter for forty-three years now, and every single story that I've ever done, um, the promotion department comes down and says. I need a headline. What should I call this? I need, uh, I need one line. Tell me what the story is about. I need a 30 second promo. Pitch this story to me. When I try to, when I, when I want to put a story on TV, I have to go to a editorial meeting and pitch the story to my editors. So all those things, you know, the headline, the, the, the log line, the 30 second promo, the elevator pitch, all those things I've learned in television. Um, and so, Ooh, those just clicked right over into writing world. So mm-hmm. I know how to write a promo for my television stories, which means I know how to, I mean, as I say to some, I say to authors sometimes, don't tell me what the story is. Tell me what it means. And mm-hmm. that's what, and that's exactly the same, you know, 
What is what do you what can you say that's going to make the public, the reader say, "Ooh, I can't wait to read that." That's what we're going for. That's what we're going for in television too. You must watch this story because you will love it because you will care about it because it's the mm-hmm. it, because of this. Tell me that. And that's and that is learned after you know after 43 years. Um, and so that translates, as I said, that translates so beautifully to publishing world. So sure, if I can help people figure out how to do that, um, that's great. Also, 43 years of, be, of anchoring the news and doing live television reports and, you know, speaking off the cuff and, you know, having, you know, a cat run through the video or somebody yell at me from the street or a siren or church bells or the lights falling behind me and I have to act like nothing is wrong. Um, so it's exactly this. I mean, how many years have I spent talking to a red light and not seeing who's behind it? And, you know, welcome to Facebook, you know, welcome to Instagram, welcome to Twitter, all those kinds of things. So that's what I've been doing for all these years. So sure, you know, I can't believe I'm sitting here in my office with lights, you know, plugged in and, you know, who'd have thought we'd have to care at our desks about lighting and the microphone, but all right, Mm -hmm. I'm used to that. So again, very, very lucky, very, very lucky, right place, right time, right rhythm. If, you know, I guess the pandemic is never the right place, but I think all of us as authors got very nimble at the beginning of the pandemic because we, you know, our lives, our livelihoods are wrapped up in discoverability you know, in finding new books and meeting new authors and talking to the public. And that was suddenly pulled out from under under us. That rug was suddenly pulled out from under us. So all of it, not just me, you know, hardly everyone thought, what am I going to do now? How do I connect with other writers? How do I connect with readers? How do I let readers know that my book is available? How, what, what are the ways to do that? And we learned quickly that it's connection, that it's openness, that it's helping other people, that it's being um, involved with readers and writers on many platforms. It's being generous. You know, when your book comes out, I'll, I'll talk about your book coming out because I know you'll talk about mine. Not only that I love your books, but you'll talk about mine when mine comes out. We all very quickly realized that the only way to help ourselves was to help each other and and that is a selfless kind of thing because we only have one book a year. It can only be for us once. So mm-hmm. it, it, there are hundreds of authors who feel exactly the same way that I do and exactly the same way that you do and exactly the same way that all of our listeners do. And the only way to make that work is together. And how wonderful that we have this technology where we can do, you know, Hannah Mary McKinnon and I do first chapter fun where we read the first chapter yeah. of a new book out loud every Tuesday and Thursday at 12.30 p.m. ET on Instagram and Facebook. That's hilarious. If we had had real life, you know, in the pan- we wouldn't have been able to do it. In the pandemic, where are we going to go Tuesday and Thursday at 12.30? You know, we're going to be at our desks. Why not do something fun? Why not have story time for adults? Why not use that time to introduce the world to two new books a week and two new authors a week? Karen Dion and I formed The Back Room, and that was formed because... She and I did an event together. Oh my golly, I think maybe last, you know, in April of 2020. And it was so frustrating because not only could we not see, we couldn't see the, we couldn't see the audience. So she mm-hmm. and I could see each other, but we couldn't see who was there or their reaction. We couldn't feel that energy that you get from talking to real people. And so we thought, this doesn't work this way. This is not the best. 
So we decided to do the back room where we have on Zoom with breakout rooms where it's face-to-face FaceTime um, with four authors on a panel uh, twice a month. So great. And the authors love it and the readers love it. And it's like a cocktail party where you can really talk to people. So we have taken the t- technology in, in, and used it for the benefit of everyone. And it's been, you know, such a, I've learned so much about this technology and it's something that I never thought I would ha- not have to do or get to do, but that would be necessary to do. So I think it'll mm-hmm. be really interesting, don't you, to see what happens when the pandemic is over, knock on wood, how much of that online communication remains. I mean, if I can have people at my events from Hawaii and from right. you know Scandinavia and from the UK and from Singapore talking with us, I can't do that if I go down to my local bookstore as much as I'd adore to go down to my local bookstore. So I think we have learned there are two different worlds that we can now use to complement each other. I was going to ask if you think that this um, use will will move past the pandemic. Uh, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of, um, I know in theater people are, are figuring this out because they built audiences by providing online content from all over the world. So can, do you want to just get rid of that and go back to your narrow focus or have both? Well, you know, I thought about you as a theater person when this started and I, I thought, you know, it's difficult to be an author, but wow, being a performer, right. that's even harder. That's just your whole life. You can't do that. You can't have a play with someone else. You can't play music with someone else. You know, that was just, you know, seeing the lights go out on Broadway. That was just as heartbreaking as anything could be. Um, But you all also, the theater people, all kind of figured out what to do and figured out how to make it work. And so I'll ask you the same thing. It's, you know, we have now learned, you know, one of the things that that I talk about all the time um, is that you never know what good thing will come out of a bad thing. And none of us ever would, I mean, the pandemic is gaspingly horrific. But if we can eke something good out of it, we have learned way, new ways to reach people that are successful and um, valuable and even fun. Uh, you know, I, I, have, I have bare feet right now. So <laughs> that, that does not happen at library events, except for the one time I forgot my shoes. That was a problem in real life. But, um, you know, there are, there are some, you know, my launch party for my last book, um, was took place, you know, during the pandemic in a torrential rainstorm, torrential rain, power outages, lightning, floods, hideous, the worst. And if that had been in real life, nobody would have come because nobody could, nobody would have gotten in there that, wow, should I stay home and be warm and dry and cozy? Or should I put on a raincoat and a slicker and my boots and a rain and an umbrella and get in my car and drive through the flooded streets to see Hank P. Ryan talk. Well, not a chance. So I thought, well, I'm sitting here and there are hundreds of people online with me and I'm happy. You know, it was just a really strange moment. Well, and usually your book um, launches have Hank on tour and it's, you know, you've, you've pivoted and you're doing other things. And I think that that's, um, that's a, a wonderful thing to be able to do, but you pivoted right away. And then you were like, okay, let me figure this out. Well, I think, you know, and I think it's such a lesson for everyone who is a writer. And I think all of us as writers, you know, what makes us good writers is that we're creative. 
right? And we, you know, sometimes we all have to write ourselves out of a corner, right? In every book that we've written, we're writing ourselves out of a corner. So I think take your life and do that. And, you know, if you're feeling, whoa, I'm doomed, all my plans have now collapsed and crashed, you think, okay, now how am I going to write my way out of this? And you, and you do it with your life. Yes, absolutely. What do you wish you'd known sooner about the publishing journey? When you started your writing journey, you talked about needing to learn how to write a book. What did the publishing journey, what did you know about that? And what do you wish you'd known sooner when you're on your publishing journey? Julie, I, it's very difficult for me to tell you this because it sounds so silly, but I just knew nothing. I mean, nothing, absolute zero, nothing, agent, editor, publishing, distribution, sales, you, you name it. I did not know it. I did not have any idea. I just had this story that I wanted to write. I mean, people have said to me, let me put it this way. People have said to me, why did you choose first person present tense for your book? And I say, I didn't choose that. I don't know what I'm doing. I just, just what, you know, the first <laughs> sentence came out and that's what it was. And that's how it got written. And that's how that book got written. So sisters in crime, if I hadn't had sisters in crime, um, I, I, I don't know what I would have done. I, I, as I started writing the book, I started thinking, uh, there's a world out there. How does the book get from my computer onto someone's shelf? How does that happen? You know, I had a rudimentary idea of publishing, for goodness sake. You know, I'm a person in the world who buys books at bookstores. So, but the process of that, of getting an agent, getting the right agent, getting not a fake agent, but a really good agent, somebody that would sell the book. How did that get, how does that get to an editor? How does that get... How does that get to a publisher? How does that get to an editor? How do they make a decision? Why would they choose my book? Why, how, would you, how do you pick a good publisher? How, did they, how do you talk about distribution? How many copies are they going to make? Are they going to put it in hardcover, in paperback? How is that going to be? When? How long is it going to take? How much money am I going to get? All those questions. No idea. None. And it was sort of fun to figure it out. It's more fun to figure it out when there are sort of no stakes just like doing research for a television story, I did research on how you publish, a, how you get a book published. Um, but again, you know, back when I started, I learned that you had to, you printed out your synopsis and you printed out your cover letter and you printed out your first three chapters and you put it in a, a manila envelope with a sign, you did this stamped self-addressed return envelope and sent them out cold. That sent them out cold to agents. That's what I did. Um, and, you know, someone said, well, you don't want to do X, Y, and Z because they have no distribution. And I'm like, what's distribution? So <laughs> now I know. So do I wish I had known all that when I started? I can tell you, no. I do not wish I had known all that when I started all those publishing insidey stuff because it might have been intimidating. As I keep saying, I just wanted to tell the story. And those kinds of things, those very specific things, are exactly why Sisters in Crime exists. Because there are people, there are experts, there are experienced people in Sisters in Crime who will happily tell you not only who to ask, but what to ask. You know, I was at a point where I hardly knew what to ask. What I wish I had known, seriously, is that things take a really long time. And that was very, you know, you sort of hear about overnight success, number one bestseller, sold as a major motion picture. And it, 
you know, to newbies, it feels like, ooh, that happens overnight. You write out, you bang out the book, somebody buys it, somebody publishes it, it goes on the shelf. You know, it could take a month or two. And the idea of years, of years, and how many drafts, and how much work, and how much input, and how much time between writing it and sending it and editing it and copy editing it and publishing it and where it is in the, you know, where it is in the, in the publisher's catalog and all those kinds of things takes a long time and people get impatient. I've seen too many people get impatient and they say, you know, I've sent this out to five agents and nobody's answered me. And I'm like, yeah, they're not going to, you know, keep working. And all this, they say, I've actually had people say to me, I've rewritten this book five times and I'm not doing it again. And I say, great, don't do it again. But nobody's ever going to read it because it's not good enough. So that impatience, um, you know, as a television reporter, I, as a general assignment reporter, I'd come in in the morning, get an assignment, go out and do the story. And by six o'clock that night, a little movie would be on TV. Bing, instant gratification. I knew I could see the result of my work. But what I wish I had known and what I kind of embrace now is that it's a step by step by step. There is no instant gratification. Um, there are Cinderella stories where wonderful things happen to people, but not for years. Okay. You know, the overnightness, that overnight moment is a result of years of working and the biggest pitfall. I don't know if it's the biggest one. Okay, I'll just, I'll qualify by saying one of the biggest pitfalls I see is writers sending their stuff in too soon. They get impatient, they get bored, they get angry. They send their stuff in too soon and you are doomed. You know, you are, you get one chance to command uh, an agent's or editor's attention. And if you squander that chance, you'll never get it again. So uh, take it slow is what I would say. Make sure it's good, make sure it's right. And then work on it again and again and again. Because this publishing world, everything takes a long time. And they're only going to take the cream of the crop for a terrible cliche. Um, and you better make sure yours is that cream before you start putting it out there or you are doomed to be disappointed. That's great advice. And for indie published authors, it's similar advice in make sure you're ready to go before you self-publish, you know, make sure that it's the best it can be because you don't have that opportunity again um, to redo it. So that's tremendous advice. You talked about Sisters in Crime. You were the president of Sisters in Crime from 2012 to 2013. Um, Laura DiSilverio was your vice president. Can you talk about the role that the organization played in your writing life and, and you know, your journey with the organization? I'm going to sound like I'm such a newbie at every turn in my life. You know, every, every, you know when Kathy Pickens was the person who approached me um, and asked me whether I would consider being president of Sisters in Crime, I remember... I remember the moment, but I can't remember where it was exactly. I was at a voucher con in the, in the hallway of a hotel. And I said, me, be president of Sisters in Crime? Do, are you sure? I, I don't think so. You know, are you sure you have the right person? Um, and this was actually 20, this was actually the year, two years before that. 
because I, because I was working on my book, The Other Woman. And so that came out in 2012. And I said to her, um, I don't think I can do this because I have a, my first book in the Jane Ryland series, my first real multiple point of view, big book thriller. I'm working on that now. And I don't think I can give the time that I know I'll need to do to be president of Sisters in Crime and have this first big book come out at the same time. So she says, well, will you do it the next year then? We'll get, you know, we'll find someone and that'll be great. And she'll be wonderful, I'm sure. And then we'll help get you the next year. So I said, I, are you sure you want me? And she says, and she swears she didn't say this, but she did. She said, you don't really have to do anything. And that was wrong. That was just 100% wrong. And I said that to Laura Silverio when I talked to her about it as well. And we laughed and laughed. I said, because Laura is the best person in the world. And I said to her, you won't have to do anything. And then she just laughed because by that time we knew. So um, the, it made me feel, if I can use this word, it made me feel very maternal and very responsible um, to, when I looked at the list of the history of women who had been president of Sisters in Crime and saw those names and realized that my name was going to be on that list, I got this huge sense of responsibility um, that I had to make sure that their that their paths were open, that the, their lives were fair, that the, that the decisions that got made were right, that we were treading on really new ground at that time. And I remember we had a huge meeting to talk about how far we had come in Sisters in Crime, and whether it was time to change our motto and our focus, the idea, sort of whether it was time to say, we succeeded in what Sarah Paretsky and our founding mothers had wanted. We had gotten sort of, we got noticed. Our, our books were being reviewed. Women writers, women mystery writers, <coughs> were, getting, were getting the airtime and the page time that we had never gotten before. And we sort of started thinking, maybe we should stop asking to have, you know, to be, to get attention and sort of declare that we have attention. We're here, we won, we're a part, we're a part of this publishing world, writing world, mystery world, as much as anybody else is. And now we will continue the journey for parity and equality and attention um, instead of asking for it that we've won, that we're taking it, and we're going to continue to fight, but we're not needy anymore. And that was a big moment for us. So that year as president of Sisters in Crime was really pivotal. I think we changed direction quite a bit in our way of thinking, in our mindset, in our goals. And I came out of that year um, really honored to have been president. My mind was truly opened to the bigger picture of how we are all sisters and misters and we are all in this together from the new authors and the people who are just entering this world to the to the people who have been writing mysteries um, for dozens of years and how valuable those people are those you know the heritage writers and our founders and the people who made those pathways, how, how grateful we all are to those and how we have to continue, um, especially 
in inclusivity and diversity and new voices. And I don't even think that was a word at that time, but now, you know, it's such a part of, of how we live. So I, I sort of think that when I was president of Sisters in Crime, it was the beginning of a new era in Sisters in Crime, um, which Laura DeSolario and Katrina McPherson and the, the presidents after that um, just took and ran with in the most glorious of ways. Hank, one of the great things that presidents get to do in their role as immediate past president on the board is have a project. And projects have ranged over the years um, from, well, in all different ways. And you could check on the website for some of them. But the project that you took on was unique um, in, in Sisters in Crime. And it was a wonderful book called Rites of Passage. Can you talk about the book a little bit and why you decided that should be your project? I wanted, I thought about this from, from moment one, when I became president of Sisters in Crime, I thought about what I could do for my project. I mean, this was just something that was at the top of my mind from moment one, so silly. But I, I had a, a, a deep, profound feeling that it was important that there was a legacy of my tenure as president, that um, I looked at the list of past presidents and the legacies that they'd left in so many ways. And I know life is so ephemeral and we are all here for but a brief time. And But there are things about being a writer that never changed. There are things about being a writer that we all always share, no matter where we are in the process of being a writer. And I was trying to figure out how to capture um, that essence of being a writer. That was one element of what I was trying to plan. And then I wondered, how can I have an, have an anthology that's not a how to write anthology, but how to a how to be anthology, an anthology of our experiences, of the people who are in Sisters in Crime at every level of the spectrum, the total newbies to the people who had written 20 books. What was it that was the essence of their uh, being? You know, not necessarily success, but the essence of their being as authors. When did they feel happy? When did they feel pride? When did they feel terrified? What did they do when they felt terrified? One of the things that I love about Sisters in Crime in general is, as we always talk about, you know, you write alone, but you're not alone. And I wanted to have a thing, a tangible thing that we who are alone all the time could look at from time to time and say, oh yes, you know, that's how Margaret felt. That's how Julie felt. That's how Laura felt. That's how Katrina felt. You know, I'm just like them and we are all like each other. And I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to share their experience. I mean, they say you can only learn from experience. But what they don't tell you is that the experience doesn't have to be your own. And that was sort of my touchstone with this book. How can we share our experiences and our journeys um, with each other? And how can we make that be a real thing that you can hold in your hands? One of the, one of the interesting things about the book is how the cover evolved. So I want you to ask me about that. But my goal was to ask writers for their personal 
experience at one specific level of the writing process. And you see how the table of contents is divided in a way that I thought was unusual. Well, and I love what you're saying that the, the you know, you learn from experience, but it doesn't have to be your experience. And focusing on the writing journey, which is, it's not, it, the writing journey is everyone's, but it's, that doesn't change with technology. That doesn't change with other, we can build tools, but being a writer is something that is, uh, you don't have to be alone and figure that out. You can learn from other people and feel community with other people, which is what Sisters in Crime does. Uh, but th th that's one of the things I love about the book is it makes you feel less alone or less like, oh, I'm the only other person who's ever felt like this, or I must be doing it wrong. It's like, no, no, read, read, the, read the essays. There are other people who I agree, like and it, but it isn't just... It, it, the way it's structured, that it begins with beginnings and growings and belongings and worryings and rewardings and failures, it's very specific. It's not just a book of sort of inspirational essays of how to feel better when you're having a bad day. No, it's very specific moments in time for each writer and how they handled those joys and those sorrows and those rejections and those edits, um, those moments where it's difficult that you're dealing with someone else or that you're by yourself. There's being alone and then there's being in a group and there's being with an editor and there's being with an agent, all those kinds of things, but not how to do it, but how we felt, how we felt mm -hmm. and how we um, experienced it and how we overcame it and how we grew from it and succeeded and blossomed in the end to the extent that we felt joy in shepherding and guiding someone else through their journeys. I mean, this is what Sisters in Crime is all about. And I was just trying to think of some way to share the essence of Sisters in Crime in a book. We all, I mean, it's making me realize that one of the things about being a writer is that you have an idea and then you decide it's a good idea. And then you have to put that on paper. Then you have to make, right? That's the problem. And that's what, I, that's, that's what, that's what rites of passage is. It is each step along the way in our passage to grow and get better and succeed and be happy even in, in this time that we have as a writer. Well, the interesting thing about the journey that a book like Rites of Passage affords you the ability to look into is that it's not linear. It's not always forward. It can be ups and downs and backwards and curves and curves you didn't expect and curves you thought you were prepared for. And so a book like Rites of Passage can also make you feel better about a reset or about a... Um, reestablishing yourself or building your confidence back up because the publishing journey, which is different, but can have such impact on your confidence and on your ego and everything else. Uh, you've got to get back to the essence of being. Exactly. Writer. So wise. And the thing that I wanted to make sure of is that it wasn't my all sort of patting you on the head and saying, Oh honey, it'll be okay. We've all been through it, but yeah, 
we've all been through this and here's what I did and here's how I felt and here's how you can do it too. Practical steps. I mean, that's what I was sort of talking about the cover and the evolution of the cover is exactly what I'm talking about, about the evolution of the book. It started out that in the first incarnation of the cover, it was this beautiful, I had asked for a quill pen and I got a, the artist designed this beautiful quill pen that looked like a feather, of course, it had the feather and it was sort of deeply pinky red, a beautiful white pen on this pinky red cover. And I called it the feather book. And I kept thinking of Emily Dickinson is that hope is the thing with feathers. And I thought this is a book of hope and this is the feather book and we'll call it the feather book. And here's, you can hold to your heart when you need some hope. And here is what this book is. And through a series of crazy challenges, again, that's a whole nother story. This emerged into the gorgeous book that we have now, which is, if you look at it, an origami bird. So think about what an origami bird is. It's a piece of blank paper that is shaped and folded and twisted and turned and made into a gorgeous new creature. I just got goosebumps telling you about that because it shows what we all do as authors is we take a piece of paper and put something on it. We make it into something else. We make it into a story. And the cover of Rites of Passage made that bird, make, made that piece of paper take flight. And I, and I just think it's perfection. It is perfection. Um, you know, uh, as we're talking now, Sisters in Crime is looking at a way to republish um, Rites of Passage and looking at covers and looking at different things. But that essence of exactly what you're talking about is critical to the book because while people may not see all those depths of, of uh, meanings in the cover. They can feel it as they're reading. Exactly. And the, the, the symbols of hope and the symbols of uh, creativity and the symbols of belief and the symbols of imagination, that's what this book is about. All those things and how um, all of our thought processes are different and similar. And that's exactly what Sisters in Crime is, isn't it? It's a, is it, did Kurt Vonnegut, is it Grand Falloon or, or Carras, a group of people that are bonded together by something that they didn't know at the beginning and now they know. And, and that's, what, that's what Sisters in Crime is. That's why you can talk to any member of Sisters in Crime anywhere you go and have, and it feels if you know them. And I, and I think that that's one of the joys of Sisters in Crime as well. We say to each other, what are you working on? What are you reading? And everybody has an answer, and it's always interesting. It's always interesting, and it's, it's um, a favorite topic for so many of us. So, Hank, thank you so much for this time and for this conversation, and it's been great. So, I, But I do have one more question for you. Sisters in Crime is in its 35th year. Whenever people listen to this, they we could be well past that. But for as we're recording it, um, we're in our 35th year, and this organization has done so much and and been around. But we still have room to grow and to expand and to evolve and to change. Uh, what do you, what are your hopes for the organization in the next 35 years? Oh my golly! So there's a really easy question. I I don't know. I mean, I think one of the one of the things that I have seen evolve in Sisters in Crime is a true expansion in every way of the membership, of who we are, of what we talk about, of how we listen to each other, 
and how we work to understand each other and how we are open-minded and brave and courageous and eager to learn and up to the challenge. I mean, I, I think the, the, gosh, the personalities of people who are involved in Sisters in Crime and the personalities of the people who are involved in writing mysteries were curious. We want the world to work. We want to find out who people are. We want to find out everyone's stories. And I think as long as Sisters in Crime focuses on that, the stories we write and the stories of our lives, and that we're embracing and accepting and adventurous and courageous, that's what we need in Sisters in Crime. There's craft we can always learn from each other. There's promotion we can always learn from each other. But at the core of it is that we are all storytellers, and we love stories, we want to hear stories, and we want to tell stories. Um, and as long as Sisters in Crime can cultivate that and shepherd that, and as long as we can carry each other hand in hand and arm in arm and shoulder to shoulder, I think we'll be fine. That's great. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Hank, and for this fabulous conversation. Julie, my pleasure. You are such a rock star, and it's always a joy to talk with you. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.